All right, the last coffee. Here we go. This is one I was looking forward to. This is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's one of the most important books, especially that we've read on this show or that I've read in recent history. I still have problems with it, <laughs> as you could probably imagine. I pretty much have problems with everything to some degree. I take it easy on the literature. I really do. But when it comes to this, this is a very important book. This is the same Harris reading list. I don't know what number this is, but this particular book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was published 2000. It won the Nobel Prize in Economics, at least it says so on the cover. I didn't vet that claim. Its content is so many important concepts. I can't even begin to go into any of the stuff to the degree that's necessary, but it has a very important general theme that everybody should take to heart. So uh, it began really with a question. Are people good intuitive statisticians? That's the question. Are they good at it intuitively? And the answer is no, not really. Not, not very much at all. There are a whole bunch of things that affect our ability to be able to answer questions properly and to come to correct answers. So the book talks about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it talks about how money primes individualism. So if you are primed with the idea of money, then you'll be more inclined to be more individualistic. And there's this one uh, study that they did. So <laughs> like when there was a, they'd have this contribution tin and when there were eyes over the contributions tin, then the contributions increased over something like flowers or something. But if it felt like somebody was watching you, then you'd be more inclined to, to give money to it. And there's an important concept of cognitive ease versus cognitive strain. Your brain tends to go towards things that are cognitively easy as opposed to ones that create strain. So this manifests itself in a whole bunch of different ways. Okay, I need to find an answer to a question. I'm just going to ease into the easiest answer as opposed to attempt to find a more difficult but probably true one. Obvious things are like stereotypes or something like that but more interestingly is in this structure that Kahneman uses related to okay there's a system one and there's a system two when it comes to the way that we perceive reality or try to think through problems or whatever if a man's voice if you hear a man's voice saying I am pregnant then there's gonna be more strain you know than if you hear a woman's voice saying I am pregnant and that's because you instantly go through this analysis that says that a woman can get pregnant a man cannot get pregnant so you have to take more time and put more effort into understanding that or like somebody with an upper class inflection like a a British person or something like that with a, I was just watching, what was it, Inglorious Bastards and Magneto. Michael Fassbender, is that who it is? Had this accent that was very high society British accent. But if he said something about how he just got a tattoo or something like that, then uh, it would create cognitive strain. It'd be something that doesn't automatically click, that makes sense that your analysis happened intuitively and it made sense. Uh, so system one is fast, it's instant. It takes into account intuitively the things that you know and figures out, okay, that all fits or that doesn't fit or whatever. System two is slow and deliberate. It's something that you have to go through to figure out the answer to something that doesn't just come to you. So he uses this structure throughout the whole book. And obviously, as he acknowledges, these are oversimplifications, the way that we think and the way that we analyze things, but it's a good start to understand the general differences between the way we analyze problems. And so there are a whole bunch of issues. So there's what you see is all there is issue. You just kind of cut out all the rest of the world <laughs> You know, you don't know what you don't know. So you'll jump to conclusions on limited information. Everybody's seen this, of course. It's probably the thing that happens the most on the internet. <laughs> 
<laughs> what you see is all there is. So you'll take one statistic or two statistics and you'll make a massive determination. Obviously, it's something I talk about a lot. You'll make some massive determination and create an answer and just say, look, I figured this out. When even 10 or 50 or 100 statistics would not do justice to how complex this topic is. But still, you, you jump to those conclusions. There are other issues. One very interesting idea that he talked about was answering the question that you choose instead of the question that was asked. So it's a heuristic that people use. If you're asked a question, instead of parsing out, okay, what does this question mean? What answers do I have to this question? You will instantly ask yourself a different question that's easier to answer and then answer that question. So I definitely see this all the time. I'm sure if you paid attention, you'd see it all the time that you'll ask a question and then somebody will just completely change the question in their heads and answer a completely different question because it's way easier to answer. You know, if someone asked, okay, is it good for Trump to negotiate the tariffs? Then somebody, instead of answering that question, which is extremely complex and you have to go into all sorts of stuff that you don't even know about, then you'll answer the question, is Donald Trump an idiot? And then you'll just go with that and say, there's that. So that answers your other question. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so it's something that people do all the time. Another one, I forget the context he brought this up in, but it was, there's an intensity comparison. So you can analogize intensity. So if you say that something, okay, this person's as good at cooking as this person is tall. So how tall do you think the person is? And then you'll, you'll be able to connect those things analogously. There's a diminishing sensitivity to intensity. As things increase, your sensitivity to the increase doesn't proportionally respond to that. So it should respond in kind to the increase in intensity, but it doesn't do that. And then there's loss aversion. Everybody knows loss aversion has a disproportionate effect on what we want to do or not do or whatever. So he brought up this idea of if you had like in a small town, if there was a, there were high cancer rates in the small town and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's causing all this, all these cancer rates. Uh, so you go through and you're, you're checking the water and you're checking, you know, the food and, and finding out what practices they engage in and all that stuff. And you're like, okay, per capita, the cancer rates are so monstrous in this small town. What's going on here? Uh, then you realize that it's an accident of sampling. Most likely that it's a matter of the fact that it's a small town once by virtue of luck or just general rates overall or anything else, you have an increased number of cancer patients or rates of cancer in that area. That's going to be hugely amplified because you have a small population. So it's going to seem like it's something significant when in reality, it's just an accident of sampling. And I think he used this term artifacts, artifacts that are issues that are produced by the method of research as opposed to it being responsive of the thing that you're trying to study. So this is an interesting idea, but this is an important idea because it's a matter of really understanding the context of what's going on here instead of drawing huge conclusions based on very limited information. And so obviously it's something that happens all the time, just taking one data point and drawing all sorts of conclusions about it. He talks about availability bias, uh, the ease of retrieval is a factor in whether we're going to accept it or not. So if something's more available, we're more likely to accept it, which is concerning. Obviously, it shouldn't be a matter of availability. It should be a matter of what's correct or what's not. He talks about Bayesian reasoning, so reasoning from prior probabilities. I read a book entirely based on Bayesian reasoning, and oh my gosh, it just, it took forever. And I understand, like, it's a, it's a great idea. I just, I would love to understand it better so we could do it more effectively, but it's going to take some work to get that <laughs> applied to all kinds of determinations of what we know or don't know or whatever. The book I read was about the historicity of Jesus. And it was a very good book. It was a, it was a long book. It obviously had other things about it too, but it, it went through this Bayesian reason.
reasoning at each step along the way. And I suck at math, so... <laughs> It was just, it made it more difficult, but it, it was otherwise, I mean, it was a very limited portion of the book that was actually talking about that. It was by Dr. Richard Carrier, I believe, on the historicity of Jesus. Yeah, I think I have that book somewhere. But if you want to read a great book about uh, the Gospels and the historicity that impacts the historicity of Jesus, read that one. But also the Homeric Epics and the Gospel of Mark. I can't remember who wrote that. I'm sorry, guy, but a very, very good book. I thoroughly enjoyed it and it goes into detail how Mark was using a lot of the Homeric epics to try to write this inversion of the epic for Jesus and, and create this whole new new thing. Anyway, so he brings up Linda. Okay, yeah, so there's this thing about what was the probability of Linda being a bank teller versus a feminist bank teller. And so people would mince the ideas of probability and plausibility. Obviously, it's much more likely uh, for somebody to be a bank teller, Linda or anybody, to be a bank teller rather than a bank teller and a feminist. When you add an extra thing, it makes it less probable. I know there was something... Oh, yeah! <laughs> Sam Harris talked about Mormonism and how, okay, well, the Mormons have all this crazy stuff when it comes to Jesus and, and the Old Testament and all that, but they just add some extra stuff. So just by virtue of math, it's less likely to be true. <laughs> <laughs> he brings up golfers. So golfers could have like an extremely good day one and then a bad day two or a mediocre or just like generic day two. But he brings this up to talk about the idea of the regression to the mean. So they're going to be outliers who by virtue of luck, which is most likely to blame is luck. They're going to have a super great day one or super great day two. But after that, you're going to have this regression to the mean where people, you know, even if, if you have a horrible day, same thing, you're going to regress to the mean of performance. Now, this is a kind of... I love the concept of regression to the mean, but I think it's... I don't know how useful it is as a concept because you really have to narrow the context so much for this to be meaningful. It's like with golfers, you have to narrow it to only the people who are the absolute best and still there are going to be differences between them. So you have to control for all that because obviously if I play against Phil Mickelson or that Irish one or... <laughs> or Tiger Woods, then they're going to absolutely destroy me every time. Uh, so, and I'm not going to regress to their me. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to remove over, you know, day one versus day two. I'm not going to get closer to them. I, I'm going to have my own mean uh, way down in the sand trap. So I don't I don't know how useful. This is something you have to very carefully and in a detailed way really express this idea and understand this idea and control for so many things. I'm not sure how useful it is, uh, but it's really interesting to me, especially as it comes to like biology. I, I think it's a fascinating idea and a fascinating concept. Uh, there's the whole hindsight thing, a bias where we act like we already knew. I mean, everybody does this. I catch myself doing this where it's like, oh yeah, I called it when I didn't, I didn't know such thing. I didn't know such thing. But we all do this at some point. So it's, it's another effect that we have that's, that's going to affect our ability to understand, you know, what's true and what's not. And there's this, oh, he gets, he does this repeatedly throughout this book. This is one thing that annoyed the hell out of me is that he just gleefully attacked experts and is like, oh, well, I pointed out how this expert was so wrong. And it's like, who cares? Is that really, is this an ego thing? Does it matter? Can we just figure stuff out instead of it becoming about this? I don't know if it's just to sell more books or make give some kind of a narrative to it. And I know it's, when it comes to publishing in general, it's a big deal. It's like, oh, I'm the one who knew, but nobody else knew. Obviously, it's an important narrative for purposes of publishing, but I still, I get sick of it. It's like, oh, stick it to the experts. I stuck it to the experts. And I, I love doing, he said it at some point that I love sticking it to the experts. It's like, who cares? Like, every 
everybody just figure stuff out? Jeez. But in this, uh, there were, there was like some kind of a study about the most celebrated firms, like financial firms versus less celebrated firms and how the less celebrated firms had better returns overall. Uh, and there was still a regression to the mean and any standouts was more based on luck than not. So fine. Great. I, I mean, I've heard that so many millions of times now that like stock traders, all your wealthiest stock traders don't actually do better than anybody else or something like that, but they still have a hell of a lot more money. So <laughs> I'm not sure you still have to control for that. Certainly better than I am at it. And there it is. Yeah, there's a, a freight like the comeuppance of arrogant experts is important to him for some reason. I don't know what it is, what happened to him that this is an important thing, but whatever, that's what you get off on. I don't think it's important. I think we can move on to, you know, what's true and what's not. The endowment effect. So he has friends who buy wines, like expensive wines, but they only buy it at a certain rate and only sell it at a higher rate. And so if we were all perfect econs, this was coined what was it it wasn't coined in nudge was it it was coined somewhere but it just means somebody who acts like the perfect economic unit of an individual who, who does all the perfect economic things for them if we were all econs then we would see the value of the bottle of wine as the same you know it's just having the wine itself having the bottle of wine would not increase the value of it <laughs> So he's pointing this out to show that we don't actually think in those terms that we're not all perfect econs, which is, is fine. I, I mean, I, I again take issue with, oh, well, this is established authority. And so now I'm questioning the established authority. Uh, just come on. Like, I know you need to sell books. I get it. And it's more, it stands out more when you put it in those terms. Hopefully we get over that at some point where it's like an ego thing, but whatever. And he, he brought up something about marriage. Oh, yeah. He was saying how good interactions needed to outnumber bad interactions by a margin of five to one because we place more emphasis on bad interaction like bad things in general so they need to interact outnumber by about five to one for people to stick around to stick together which i mean it's important idea important concept related to marriage in general i'd still i mean i'd love to see a comprehensive study of marriage period and i'd love to see like more deliberate careful studies of the way that people interact when it comes to marriage and when it comes to relationships in general and see how those interactions happen happen, what they say to each other, how they act and react in the context of the way that they respond to different stimuli. I would love to see that kind of a thing, but anyway. Okay, so, oh, we're, oh my gosh, we're already closing out this book. I did not do justice to the things that are in this book, but I, I hit most of the important points here. I mean, like I said, the, his general conclusion is that we're not irrational, but we need help. I would step back a lot more than that and say that <laughs> we're very irrational and we need a lot of help, but the government shouldn't be the one helping. <laughs> <laughs> because they're still irrational too. They're still people and they're still doing all the irrational stupid things that they're, they're gonna do. So he brings up libertarian paternalism. Uh, I've heard it described as rationalistic paternalism, but it's just where the government does things that are, that nudge people in the right way as opposed to force them to do the right thing. So it, it's things like having to opt out of a 401k instead of opt in. In the short term, if you, you could say, oh, I get more money per month you know if i opt if i don't opt into the 401k but if you automatically do more people are going to have it and it's going to benefit them long term and he pointed out that system one is most of what we do most of the time it's system one doing what it's doing and it does a whole lot of great things it's a kind of quasi bifurcation in our brains that is extremely helpful but it also leads to a lot of problems because we didn't as we were as the handsome primate was <laughs> was evolving through the years we didn't need a mechanism 
them psychologically or cognitively to be able to deal with numbers this big. We didn't need to deal with populations of millions and hundreds of millions of people. You know, we had bands of 40 to 100 and we were, <laughs> we were dealing with those and just external tribes, we attacked them and left it at that. But system one is most of what we do. System two is something that comes up when there's, when there are issues with how our system one is working. So, uh, my thoughts, my thoughts on it. Many, many very important ideas. Like I said, I didn't do it justice. There's a whole bunch of good stuff in here. A lot of the things, I mean, it's frustrating because so many things are so complex that you'd probably need a whole book on each one to really dive in and figure out what's going on there. But still, it's, it's really important. A lot of important ideas. Uh, it should be, should have been in 2011, a turning point in a cascade of humility. It was not because we're in 2019 now and people are exhibiting less humility than I've ever seen, at least the most vocal aspects of our population are. Uh, and it's also, like to some degree I understand, because it's actually really difficult to speak in terms of proportionate doubt. So when you're talking about a particular concept, it's really easy to talk about it in terms of a binary that just says it's true or it's not true, as opposed to really going into the details, because it would take, every conversation would take four years, you know? <laughs> no matter what you're talking about, it would take forever. So we don't really have the time, and most people don't have the capacity to think in those terms or talk in those terms. So it's, I understand to some degree, but I still think we need to figure out like a new vernacular of doubt so that we understand that we're expressing the fact that we're not certain on any of this stuff and that these concepts are very complex and we're acknowledging the fact that they're really complex and I could be wrong tomorrow. So hopefully we can figure that out. Uh, like I said, I got annoyed that he was infatuated with sticking it to the experts, but is only minorly distracting and it would be great to see because most of these things uh that he talks about are in controlled settings is how you figure out how these things exist but it would be great to see how these function out there in the real world i know you can't really control the real world so that you know that this is the thing that's happening but it would be great to be able to determine using quantum computing or ai or something <laughs> really determine how these things these biases and and the effects and like the affect heuristic or whatever all those things it would be great to actually determine how those function in the real world with all the sorts of things going on around us and all of the other things affecting us you know about life or traffic or anything else so it would be great to see that so it's it's overall a very important book it's taking a serious step toward an enlightened handsome primate populace <laughs> but we'll see how far we get with it uh, it's had eight years now I don't know how many people uh, it's it was a bestseller right and it won the Nobel Prize but I don't know how many people have read it and I don't know how many people would find the ideas accessible in general. Anyway, so it was good. Go read it. This is The Last Coffee House. We are... I finished... I'm finishing my second reading of World Order by Henry Kissinger. I finished The Lighthouse. Finished Ian Forster's A Room with a View. And I've got a whole bunch of other stuff coming in. I've, I've been reading Bertrand Russell's It's Like a History of Philosophy. And I love it, but it's so long, I'm never going to be able to do an episode on it. It's just never going to happen. I'm just going to do a five-second episode. So it says, yes, go read it. And <laughs> this is the last coffee I was buying my book. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how that comes along. But it's just one that I pop on occasionally. And then I'm, I'll, oh yeah, I'm rereading The Castle because I read it so long ago I'm by Kafka. I'm trying to get get it back down. <laughs> I have quotes from it and all that stuff. But I'm trying to get it back down so I can, I can make an episode on it. So a lot of reading stuff. Hopefully we can do more episodes that are about books. It's just, you know, I don't really have the time to be able to do two books a week and do an episode, you know, an 
and edit and all that stuff. I don't really have the time for it because I've got to play Call of Duty. <laughs> so anyway, Last Coffee House, buy my book, La John Shade Reads, Aspiring Authors. Thank you to everybody who has bought it and all the best, all the best. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, bye. Builder Tay's gone, right? True taste, huh? Oh, that's not right, not quite. Get middle thing, middle thing. Down, down, always down, never up. Step down, down. Oh, oh good. It's true, it's gone. The filter taste is gone. New Chesterfield filters have put true taste in a filter cigarette.